Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host and your fellow traveler-er in the exploration of what money means to us and how we live a better life by knowing what we want from it. Warts and all. This week's guest is Alfred Lebrano, an award-winning reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Alfred is the author of a book called Limbo, Blue-Collar Roots, White-Collar Dreams. The book explores the conflicts within individuals who grew up working class but graduate into a white-collar career. These straddlers, as he calls them because they are straddling two different social groups, they're often torn between the culture that raised them and the professional world to which they aspired. Limbo has been quoted in the Harvard Business Review, the American Bar Association Journal, which is a gripping read, The Atlantic, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alfred because he makes a lot of not necessarily obvious points about the complications that that arise for people who are very ambitious and for people that are very accomplished but don't come from a world of privilege. And so even though the book's been out for a while, it is as timely as ever. Next week's episode, we're going to augment this conversation about Straddlers by having interviews with some people that I know or have come to know that have a background in the blue-collar world, but actually have become very, very successful professionals, and I want to hear about their experiences. So you'll have that to look forward to, which is nice, as you know. All right, here's my conversation with Alfred. Let's say you move on, and you're in corporate America. I mean, corporate America is built in a certain way. There's certain middle-class mores, certain ways that you that you conduct yourself, certain ways that people act that are decidedly not blue-collar. My dad, you know, when I was telling him I was, I was having a hard time with my boss, in my first newspaper, the guy was being a, a bit of a jerk. My dad said, well, this is what you got to do. And I, and I so settled down to listen, you know, he, okay, this is what I do. he said, he said, if you grab him by, by his shirt and then twist it and then pull, push him up against the wall. I said, well, that's not a really good thing to do, but I'll keep that in mind. That thanks. He said it out of love, you know, and, and, and frustration because he knows that I was, I was hurting because I was having problems, but I, you know, that, that's clearly not the way you, you get things done in, in, in the office. That is how things work, maybe down on the docks and in the construction field where my dad worked. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Alfred Lebrano, thank you for joining us on Crazy Money. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Alfred. You're a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And you wrote a book that I really enjoyed. It's called Limbo, Blue Collar Roots, White Collar Dreams. Tell us about the book and why you wrote it. I grew up working class in Brooklyn. My father did not complete high school. My mom did. And so um, I started to understand after I uh, went to college, there's a real difference between the working and the uh, and the middle class. And it, it sort of came into stark relief for, for me when I was at college. I went to Columbia University in New York. And part of the time I was there, my dad, who was a bricklayer, happened to be on campus for a little while and uh, building a campus building. So it just really hit me that uh, the difference be- between our, our days. He was a working class guy, like I was born a working class guy, but I was I was moving on to something else. I, I was in a in a decidedly middle class, upper middle class institution trying to change my life. It occurred to me that we are uh, related by blood, but separated by class. And that idea just kind of stuck with me as I went through college and graduate school. And, and I started working as a newspaper man and a, a writer. And I always kind of revisited in my mind, how would I organize this? And what what are the experiences that other people like me have who are born in the working class, but moved to the middle class? Uh, and how, how does it play in the head and the heart to be socially mobile? The terms class and middle class and working class, but especially middle class, I think is sort of misunderstood these days. Could you expand on what you mean by middle class and working class, please? Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to simplify things for when I I wrote my book and economists will say there were 16 classes and they're just two. There's rich and poor and then now of course 
the idea of middle class is difficult. The Pew will say that the middle class is something between 40,000 and 120,000 annual salary. So it's difficult. The middle class is hard to hard to understand. M- many people believe that they are in the middle class. I think there's something, there have been some surveys that show that like 90% of people think they're middle class when that's not really possible. It's absurd mathematically. And when you say that these people yeah. in the middle class are making, you know, $300,000 a year, they identify as the middle class. Right. And there's, there are also people who don't make a lot who think of themselves as being middle class too. So it's imprecise at best. And when I wrote the book, I had to make a distinction between blue collar working class people and middle class people. So for my purposes, blue collar working class people didn't have college degrees and performed manual labor and white collar middle class people are college educated and work at professional type jobs. Basically, you have one group working with its hands and the other with it with its mind. That's sort of the rudimentary way of looking at it. There clearly are many more complex ways to view it. And you came up with a term to describe these people like you who grew up blue collar and have aspired and attained a white collar career. Yeah, I call them straddlers, basically because they seem to straddle two worlds, or at least that's how it feels to me. And when I interviewed about 100 people for this book, that's that's how they, they saw it too, straddling two worlds, essentially having one foot in the in the working class and one foot in the middle class. And for many people, n- never really feeling at home in, in either. There are very different aspects to living middle class versus working class. And once people rise out of that working class world, they feel, you know, they're doing the, the right thing, right meaning that they want to be socially mobile, they want better things, they want more money, they want more choice in how they live their lives, etc. But there's also a sense of disloyalty that many people feel, that they feel like they're leaving behind family to a degree and sort of the values that uh, the, the class held. So straddlers keep that dichotomy, that sense of two-ness with them throughout their lives. Would you call yourself an outlier or an outcast when you were younger? You didn't feel like you fit in because you were a book smart kid. Right. I I mean, even though I came from a a tough working class neighborhood that was sort of the the crucible of the American mafia, I didn't really fit in. I used to joke around that, you know, we used to think of the mafia as like almost like a for young men growing up, the mafia was sort of like a safety school. You know, like if, if you couldn't get into Columbia, you could apprentice for Mikey Fourfingers on the, you know, the corner. I didn't aspire to to working for Mikey, but yeah, I was an outlier. You, you know, any in my neighborhood, if you read a book and you didn't beat up other people from other neighborhoods, then then you were an outlier. And and one of the things that I, I noticed when I talked to other straddlers I interviewed with was that when I asked them what was the one thing that would made you different from everybody you grew up with, and they all said the same thing. They said it was reading, and that was mysterious to them. Why did I like books, and mm. why did no, nobody else? And, and this is not to sound snobby, although anybody from my neighborhood would instantly categorize me as a, as a snob or, or use a phrase that, that would kind of really put you down, which is he thinks who he is. You know, that, yeah. that's, that was, what does that, that mean? was very much it, like, what is, he thinks who he is. Like, like you think you, you think you're better than who you are. We know who you are, but you, you think who you are, you know, and, it doesn't make just, grammatical sense. I'm not saying it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't grow up with, with the faculty of Harvard in my neighborhood. And I don't mean to put everybody down because there are great many wonderful people from there. And, and, and there the parts of me that are blue collar, I, I, I cherish. But when you are class mobile, what you are essentially saying is is that there's something wrong with the class that you were born into, because otherwise, why would you be leaving it? And so once you're finding fault, then you are enhancing your, your, your status as, as an outlier. Did the fear of being thought he is who he thinks he is who thinks Sorry, I'm missing. I'm messing up the quote. He thinks who he is. <laughs> he thinks, did, the, did the fear of being thought that you think who you is um, hold a lot of people back? It was was trying to fit in something that you gave a lot of thought to, or were you always sort of? Did you know in your heart you were meant for other groups when you were that young? I didn't always know, and as you can imagine, if you're a teenage male in a very macho environment you stray from the norm at, at your peril. 
and and uh, you get challenged. And, and I mean, and look, I I had to go through the initiations. I had to, I was in fights. I I don't think I ever started one, but you you know, it was a very rough and tumble area. And I mean, it was strange. You know, like people from uh, 18th Avenue w- would rumble with people from 19th Avenue just because they were two avenues over. You know, I, I never really right. understood the distinction. But the odd but, numbers. Uh, and, it's and, the odd numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it must have been. Yeah, you know, we were we were even people our whole lives. Um, <laughs> And then there were some serious things too. I mean, if people would come in from outside the neighborhood, or if they were uh, they were minority people, their being there was seen as trespass, and then serious things would happen. And, and I never, I never understood that. I never participated in that. And and yes, you pay you pay a certain price for not being with everybody else because after a while they they kind of think of you as being as being bizarre. And I think there were very many bright young guys who uh who kind of turned their back on what could have been a, a decent future for themselves by choosing to stay stay down in in there i mean and, and not not everybody does better let me say i i would say that <laughs> i'm a mere newspaper reporter i i would tell you that if guys hung in there and they they went to work as plumbers or or electricians or other blue collar backgrounds i i'm sure they make a lot more money than i do today <laughs> and they have a lot nicer house than i do so, I mean, that's why, too, there's a, there are distinctions between economic and social class, too. There, there's lots of plumbers who make a lot more money than, than college professors with PhDs, but you my can't plumber say cer- they're ne- necessarily think that. Your plumber, plumber does, yeah. Seems to, do, seems to do okay, yeah, based on a plurality. Yeah. You need them, you're going to pay what they charge, right? Cause, but you bring up an interesting point. You know, you didn't fit in necessarily as a child from a social standpoint or a philosophical standpoint your desire to live a different kind of life wasn't necessarily economic. You could have gone to Wall Street, you could have gone to law school, but you're a man of words. So did you think about money when you were a kid? Like you wanted out because you wanted to make more money, you wanted more stability? Was that part of your thinking? No, no. And it became a big argument in my family because my father couldn't understand. If you would go through the the time and and difficulty and expense of, of going to an Ivy League college like Columbia, why the hell would you come out of that trying to be, a, you know, going to yet another school, a journalism school, and, and then just becoming a mere reporter? You know, why not work in advertising? Why not become a lawyer? Why not, you know, if you're going to move ahead, and my family did want me to move ahead, but it, they just didn't understand this this idea of trying to do something that was in your heart because it was because you wanted to make a difference, because you love knowledge for knowledge's sake, because you wanted to write. These very esoteric notions don't really play in the blue-collar world, because there there are very few rules in the blue-collar world, but one of them is to make as much money as you can to support your family. And so to be a dreamer trying to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, which is, you know, the sort of the cliche of what journalists try to do, to go into that kind of squishy world made even less sense to working class folks who, who launched you to begin with. And they, they just, they, they still look at me a little funny. <laughs> why, you know, why the hell did you do this? But it, it was, and, and you know, when you're 18, 19 years old, you know, or at least when I was, I got a little self-righteous about it. You know, I, I want right. to tell the truth. I don't want to be in advertising. That's lying, you know. And, and it was just, it, these were some of the worst conversations to have, you know, and I was so unctuous and I was, I was so full of myself. And uh, the sad thing was I, w- I wasn't able to communicate it well enough. Um, later on, I think things got a little bit better in my family, you know, they, they sort of accepted. You said something funny when you're, you said uh, something about your dad saying, finish college, otherwise I got a shovel in a garage waiting for you. Yeah, he really said that. And, and that's, that's sort of the whole mystery of all of this you, you you know it's like your family says your blue collar family sits down and says you know you should go to college because because you can do better and you know that's a tough thing for a dad to hold himself out as an example he's saying to his son whatever you do don't be like me mm. uh, so that's a hard thing i think a, a, a man to say to his child and a mom too but he did he, he said do it or you know you're just gonna i'll give you the tools of my trade and, and you know the shovel and the hammer and the, and the level and you go go to work as a construction worker and get hurt every week and, and bust your body apart. So you leave your working class neighborhood in Brooklyn and you show yeah. up at Columbia and immediately you see the difference between the kinds of guys you hung out with in the neighborhood 
and the kind of guys who were raised with cultural capital. Right. And the initial key was they were wearing shoes with no socks. And they were wearing, I kinda, like, really... I, that's a good look, though. That's, I mean, you know, that's... Oh, it is. But when I was... I mean, we're talking about, like, in the mid-70s. And I was, like, I was a kid coming from the, the working class. You know, I had yeah. socks and shoes and, you know, jeans. And these guys had this uh, r- rumpled L.L. Bean shirts and khakis. And, and they were preppies. I'd come from a, a Brooklyn high school, Lafayette High School, where Larry King went and... <laughs> And, and, a, and a few a few other notables. And I just, I just had no clue. And I mean, this is part of what education is, right? It's supposed to expose you to what's, what's new and different in the world. But I, I felt like I was pretty far from home, even though it was just a few miles up the road in, in upper Manhattan. But I felt completely lost. And then and I never really understood how guys like that could just sort of hold forth and, and, and they had opinions on everything and they were just so, they had this <laughs> sense of entitlement that was just, and I couldn't believe, and, and I couldn't believe that the women in, in those days, Columbia didn't have, didn't have women students. They were across the street at Barnard College. I didn't understand how these women would just like look at these, these tasty little guys in their wrinkled clothes and, and then, <laughs> and, and go for that. Well, while the magnificence of me was standing right there, you know, six, three from, from an Italian guy from, from the neighborhood, but that was a, a valuable lesson to me is, you know, another way of being a man, you know, just what it showed that, you know, you don't, you're not just the, the macho muscle flexing guy standing around, you know, women were attracted to other things. And it was, it was very eye opening for me. How did you feel about those guys? I wanted to beat the crap out of them, <laughs> but of course, but I knew that was wrong. And throughout life, I, I realized you have this Ivy League background and also this, this blue-collar craziness in you. So I, I tried to use the college as sort of a governor on those, those bad instincts. <laughs> so no, but no I, I didn't go around beating up my classmates. And I soon learned that, that my impulses <laughs> were all wrong and that the way I was had to be, had to be polished, had to be reformed, had to be um, redirected to be a fully functioning person in the middle class you weren't the troglodyte. You were not the grunting man who, who, who demanded food and women. You had to have the goods. You had to show up intellectually as, as well as physically. You had to be a fully formed human. And while you're going through that and learning this, you're also dealing with a good bit of imposter syndrome at Columbia. Oh, yeah. Till well into my sophomore year, I, I thought that the admissions office had made a mistake and brought me in there. Maybe they just, they just had a laugh. Hey, how about this guy? Hey, bring him in. And I was, uh, it, it was a healthy sense of imposter syndrome for sure. How did you get in? What, what was that process like? Well, you know, the whole USC thing, my dad gave, you know, no, <laughs> yeah, my, my father did not, did not have $500,000 to, uh, to give to them. I was, um, I was a good student in high school. I got a lot out of my studies and I worked hard and, uh, I applied to Columbia. I, I only applied to a couple of schools and, uh, I got into them, but we sort of thought that Columbia was the best and, and I wanted to stay living in New York city. So, so that, that was, that was all there is to, I, I filled out the form and they said, sure, you can come. So the good old days of, of applying to school. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I have a, I have a 15 year old daughter and I'm dreading the process as it, as it comes up. Cause I know it, it ain't as simple as it used to be. So you've got this sort of conflict of sort of not fitting in at school. And then increasingly, you become this uh, college boy, and when you go home, you've got to fit in there. And so there's self-editing and code switching. You even had a professor that warned you to not talk about, was it Marx, at the dinner table over Thanksgiving? Well, actually, yeah, the idea being that, um, as is tradition, Thanksgiving is often the first time that students go home after they've started college. So all these freshmen with their heads n- newly pumped, all this grand and, and, and glorious information about, uh, fr- from their professors that, that might be, you know, socialist or, or, or <laughs> you, you know, borderline communist, you know, telling them things about how life really is. And, and, you know, when you're an 18 year old, you think, oh my God, that's right. Cause you're under the sway of these, these brilliant men and women who are, who are teaching you. And so, you go home and you start spouting these opinions and you look, it's just not going to play too well at the Thanksgiving table. And so the professors would say, you know, just cool it a little bit, you know, don't be the braying undergraduate who uh, is going to 
tell your folks just how things are. A lot of these kids come home for Thanksgiving. The first thing they, they announce, many of them, is I'm, I'm a vegetarian now. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that particularly pisses off the moms who just made this huge turkey. And, and you know, they'll stand and you say, you, you don't eat meat. You know, I built you out of meat. You know, m- one meal at a time, you know, one, <laughs> the meatballs and the meatloaf and the, and the roast beef, you know, wh- where do you think you've got your strength and your stamina? You know, on and on and on. And uh, I mean, I was not one of those guys, but a lot of them were. And as, as trivial as that may sound, it, it actually began a kind of wedge that would continue on be, because it was such a clear signal that you were becoming different. You know, you were becoming an educated person. Nobody, as you know, we were talking about my dad and the shovel, you know, saying, if you don't go to college, I got a shovel for you. And while they do understand that it is a good thing to go to college, what they don't understand is how it will change you and how I don't just mean accumulating knowledge, but you're also accumulating culture, you know, cultural capital. You are in essence learning a different way to, to be because you're changing your class. And so that can be threatening. That can be downright scary to the family who starts to think it's, Oh my God, we're, we're losing him. Mm. Um, that can happen in a, a lot of, a lot of times. It's sort of like, You've gone off now and, you know, you, you and your family had been speaking English your whole lives and, and now now you're learning Russian, you know, and then you're coming home and you start throwing around these Russian phrases. I don't mean literally, but, but sort of the idea that you're learning a new language, uh, yeah. you're learning a new form of expression, and, and suddenly your family is worried that they're not going to understand you. And in many ways, that is what happens. There's a, a rift that begins at Thanksgiving that, that will stay forever in, in many cases. I shudder to think of what I said at the dinner table on my first Thanksgiving home from college. I just, <laughs> I just can't, I, I would, I know I would be embarrassed by 90% of it. My parents, I, I came from, I think we had cultural capital, not a lot of money, but cultural capital. Both my parents were very well educated, but it was more like, you know, Rousseau and red lobster. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't <laughs> high end stuff. Did you ever see a look in your dad's eye that made you think, that that difference was palpable to him or your mom's eyes? I think my mom more. I don't think my dad, he was a little more authoritarian, is a little more authoritarian and very secure in himself and, and his manhood and, and, uh, and sort of that, that whole blue collar way. I mean, not to say that he, he's some macho uh, jerk cause he's not, but I saw him in my mom cause my mom, was told by us some uncaring family members when she was growing up that she was too stupid to go to college. That was literally a quote. And, and my mom was one of the smartest people I ever met, uh, even, even though she only finished high school. And she also was, it was an avid reader. I think that she was aware that a change, a change was occurring. She was not altogether against it because she was smart enough to understand as much smarter than I was to understand that this had to happen if one were to become socially mobile. Now, now nobody knows, nobody from the working class could possibly understand how much the change can, can be because there's nothing in their lives to have prepared them for it. College is such a foreign entity. But I, I could see in her eyes the acknowledgement that this was a different ballgame. That message that your mother received from an uncaring relative is an indication of behavior from what you call black hole families. Tell us a little bit about what that means. A black hole is something that uh, its gravitational pull is so strong that not even light can irradiate from it. So these, these are families that have this, this kind of core that keeps their kids down, that, that keeps any of their light from escaping, that keeps them close to home. And these are, these are frightened people to a degree. They don't want to lose their kids. And I saw it a a, a hundred times in my neighborhood, you know, it is sort of like squelching their aptitude and and limiting their ability to to become whatever they they should become. I mean, especially when you're talking about a lot of blue collar families and their daughters, they they were, even in the seventies, you know, it sounds medieval, but they were loath to uh, allow their daughters into college or, you know, to go to, to something other than. I don't know, just being, being a mom when, when they grew up. So there is, a, and, and I, I was, I was kind of surprised to learn, I mean, cause my parents, like I said, they wanted me to go to college. I was, I was surprised to learn as I talked to people from around the country for this book, 
just how plainly their parents w- would say to them, you know, you, you're not going to, we're going to block your ascendance, essentially, you, you know, don't, don't think you're better than us. And, and they saw their, started to see their kids as, as a threat. For these travelers, it, it was particularly difficult to, to fight to get a college degree because, I mean, college is hard enough. And then n- negotiating the, the new culture of, of the middle class that you find in college is hard enough. But if you have to fight your family, too, just to become something different, that, that's exhausting and difficult. And that's something that a lot of people today don't see. I mean, these days, you know, there's a name for what I was. They call them first-gen students, first-generation mm-hmm. college students. And there's a lot more understanding about what they what they go through and what they go through is is sometimes it's it's absolutely herculean just to get educated so i think it's a logical assumption that is not necessarily accurate on the part of middle and upper middle class people that will certainly all families must want their kids to go to college and succeed financially and professionally and all that but indeed a lot of straddlers have to actively choose themselves over their own family and that's incredibly painful and difficult to do. Yeah, for some of the people I talked to, it was nothing short of devastating. When you're socially mobile, as I said earlier, you, you know you, you are rejecting certain parts of your original self because you are finding fault with the class that you, you started you started out in because you want to change. But to have to buck your parents' orthodoxy is seen as the ultimate disloyalty, and there are people who lost contact with, with their relatives or probably more often just not lost contact, but lost vital ways of communicating and lost their, their closeness, saying all of them. But a lot of them reported to me their ascendance was so radical that it just couldn't be countenanced by the folks. They just couldn't take it. They would go on just kind of making fun of them. Oh, you're the professor now. Oh, you know everything. You know, even if they had like a little, they got a good job and they got a better house, you know, you would think that your folks would be proud of that, but they would say, oh, so you live in this big house on the hill and you think, you think you're better than us. I, I mean, it's sort of like the dirty little secrets of families. I mean, wow. we know that there, there are all kinds of problems growing up in, in a family, just the idea, just the dynamics on every level. But this class thing can be monumental because people are, are finding out that they are shaking up what the very culture of their families and, and just turning out to be something completely different than the parents or sometimes even another sibling or you or your cousins. And, and that difference is so palpable that people never recover sometimes. So a straddler goes to college against all odds, gets the degree, and then enters the workforce and a whole other series of social challenges present themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and one of the problems, too, is that these, let's say you're, you're one of these first gen kids like I was coming out, a lot of times you're saddled with college debt that upper class kids don't have. So, so maybe you don't have the luxury to get an unpaid internship in Washington, you know, to, that will help you right. get a better job or, sure. or you are obliged to start working right away. And, and maybe what you're working at is, you know, not the, the greatest thing in the world. I mean, there are a lot of places now that um, the way the workforce has changed is, is you can manage a restaurant now, but you've got to have a college degree. In, in the past, you didn't need a college degree for that. But, mm-hmm. but people who run restaurants know that there's so many college kids now, they're going to get a college kid to run their, their restaurant because they can. And so you're sort of behind the eight ball then. Then let's say you move on and you're in corporate America. I mean, corporate America is built in a certain way. There's certain middle-class mores, certain ways that you that you conduct yourself, the certain ways that, that, that people act that are decidedly not blue collar. So, I mean, you do not directly confront people. You, you, uh, <laughs> you, you don't tell your boss off. My, my dad, you know, when I was telling him I was, I was having a hard time with my boss in my first newspaper, the guy was being a, a bit of a jerk. My dad said, well, this is what you got to do. And I, and I settled down to listen, you know, okay, this is what I do. he said, he said, if you grab him by by his shirt and then twist it and then pull, push him up against the wall. You're, Put you're, your knee you're, in his you're, crotch. Well, well, yeah, he was saying your fist is in his Adam's apple and he can't talk. I said, well, that's not a really good thing to do, but I'll keep that in mind. That thanks. You, you know, it's, it's sort of that thing that, that you know, it's, it, I mean, he said it out of love, you know, and, and, and frustration because he knows that I was, I was hurting because I was having problems, but, I, you know, that, that's clearly not the way you, you get things done in, in, in the office. That is how 
things work, maybe down on the docks and in the construction field where my, right. my dad worked. And so that, that's uh, one of the ways that it comes out. I mean, and it's not to say that there's no aggression in the, uh, in the two o'clock meeting, you know, where, where everyone sits down and, and suddenly there's a, there's a metaphorical knife fight and, and you're left bleeding and realizing, oh my God, you know, what just happened? It's not like it's not vicious in, in the middle class business world god no well it can be it can be vicious it's just passive aggression can be just as deadly as aggressive aggression <laughs> if, right you know but right. they don't teach um, you that like you, you talk about how they don't they don't teach you politics they don't teach you schmoozing and networking back in the old neighborhood right it's not like my dad had had guys over like his boss from the construction site come over for dinner or, you know, it's not like they went and golfed together. In, in the working class, you, you know, at the end of the day, you came home and it was sort of like you, uh, you, you pulled up the drawbridge and, and, and let, the, uh, let the wild animals loose outside the, the house. And that, that was it. You know, the, mo- the moat was there and, and, and nobody, was, nobody was coming in. Come to find you working in the, in the middle class world, you know, it's not unusual that guys get and women get ahead if they if they golf or they, they, they schmooze or they, they have the bus over for dinner. Or this one woman told me um, she was from a, a Latino family from in California, working class family. And she was now in the middle class. And she was saying to me that the way she got ahead in her business was you just had to move around. The, the, the company had offices everywhere across the country and, and they would tell her, just pick a place, you know, just find a, find a, a spot in, you know, in, in, in Omaha or, or Austin or, or wherever. And, and that was the way to move up. But as a working class person, she thought, well, I can't leave my mom and my dad and my cousin, and my family. You know, we're, we're sort of right. established here. We have this extended family here in, I think it was Sacramento, and we're not, I'm not going anywhere. And, and, and it was just mystifying to, to the bosses who didn't understand why she wouldn't just move out to move ahead. Sure. You talk about there's also sort of uh, just sort of knowing the more sophisticated world, the middle class. J.B. Vance talks about in Hillbilly Elegy, I think he recounts being at a business dinner for the first time and ordering Chardonnay because it was the easiest wine to pronounce. You talk about a beer versus wine conundrum. Yeah. You really got to learn sort of polite society type secrets, right? You do. And you have to understand that. Well, well you, you know, it's like somebody, somebody said to me that, you know, sometimes you'll find yourself in a world suddenly when you come out of the working class and the middle class where, where it seems like you're meeting colleagues and every, every other person's grandfather was the governor of Arizona at one time or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was just like you just felt outflanked and out, outnumbered and, and people would be and the conversations would be decidedly different than, than the ones you had on the street corner growing up. You know, you were talking stock portfolios or they're talking about trips to, uh, to Europe for, for ski vacations and, and things like that. And ju- just this endless, endless foreign kind of uh, way of, way of talking. And, and it was, it was not only the content of the conversations, but it was the manner in which the conversations were held. You know, you just, People didn't say everything that they were thinking. You never say everything that you're thinking in, the middle, in a, in a middle-class business situation. And, and uh, in the working class, you just kind of blabbed it all out. And so, yeah, if you, you were made to feel bad if, if, you didn't, if you ordered beer over Chardonnay or, or if you didn't know uh, which fork to use or, or uh, when the lobster came, you, you weren't sure how to, how to, how to handle it. And, and on and on. I mean, there were... There were any number of potential pitfalls as you moved ahead. Now, it's all learnable. And if you're smart enough to have risen from the working class and gone through college and, and, and gotten a job, you know, you learn. I mean, my, my brother has, has been in, working in business for decades and he, he understands how, how it's all done. There's a saying that the, uh, the bricklayers would have when you were trying to learn the trade, they would tell the apprentices, you, you got to steal the trade with your eyes. There's no substitute for just watching and learning. And that's right. how you get, you get things done. So you, you hope that you can, you can keep down the, the wild man blue collar impulses that you might have long mm-hmm. enough to learn the way the world really works. You talk about how running your mouth is sort of a uh, blue collar instinct, but there's people that I grew up around that would say that it's <clears throat> certainly uh, arguably partially middle class as well, at the lower ends of the middle class anyway. You've been in both worlds. You've been in the white-collar world for longer now than you were in the blue-collar world. Where do you feel most at home today? Well, uh, I, I'm certainly not equipped to do real work. You, you know, that's the work I 
<laughs> I uh, say is like bricklaying or, or working in a coal mine or, or something like that. You could like have that. You, you, carpal you know, tunnel the, syndrome. Well, I, I do. And, and it, is, it is funny because I have carpal tunnel syndrome and, and uh, my hands were hurting one day and, and, uh, and I had to do some like these exercises with these stretchy bands and my father saw it and, and he, he said, what's the matter? And I said, oh, you know, and then, and then it, just, it just hit me. I am telling a guy who's had, you know, walls fall on him, literally walls fall on him, who's, who's in, impaled his forearms with nails, who's fallen off scaffolds. I am telling this man that it hurts when I type. Uh, <laughs> How do you and, react? And I, uh, he, well, he was, he was sympathetic. He, he was, he's not one of those. I mean, like, he, Brian Seeley, he's not a jerk. He's a loving guy, and and he said, "Oh no, I feel bad," you, you know. But but I I was just I was just so embarrassed. It, it sort of reminded me of the time that went when uh because my grandfather was a bricklayer too, and and it was a long time ago. My brother and me got my got my father an exercise bike because he had said that he was worried about getting and 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 my grandfather just looked at it and said, "Sure, that's what you need after a day of bricklaying. Get on a bike." <laughs> so you know. <laughs> The, the disconnect continued, but yeah, yeah, I I, I don't think that that uh, I, I'm equipped for that that sort of work. So yeah, I would say I prefer the middle class. And, but there's always a part of you that's going to be blue collar. You can't you can't deny your background. And I I think if you do, it's not healthy. Uh, so I try I try to do it like you know like a like a smorgasbord. You know, pick the parts that I like and uh, from the blue collar world and the, and the white collar world. And 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 I find that I feel most comfortable with people who are like me, that kind of strength from struggle sort of work ethic that got you there. But, but with, with some of that, that sort of basic blue collar background, they're tempered by, you know, some of the, the better aspects of middle-class life. Do you still have a blue collar work ethic? And what part of that work ethic was based on, I'm going to show them? To a large degree, it was, and this is not to say that people who are born middle class don't work hard, because I've I've met them and I know that they'll kill themselves on the job. But for me, I definitely had something to prove. I had to show those guys without socks that I belong there. I had to battle the imposter syndrome to to such a great degree that I had to be satisfied that I belonged. No one said to me, "You don't belong," but right. but I I did. The voice in my head did. And there's nothing louder than that. Um, and, and so you just, you just push yourself. I did graduate Columbia feeling that I belonged. And I went through the rest of my life, whatever job I had, feeling that this was me. And I'm starting to sound like a, a bad psychology. And darn it, I'm good enough. But yeah, you have to eventually get there. Otherwise, you just kind of implode. I asked because I kind of felt the same way. I kind of felt I was motivated that I had something to prove. Again, nobody said I didn't belong. I just felt like I had to pretend like I, I fit in. But I think there was a lot of people there that felt like, you know, back in college that didn't feel like they were as rich as everybody else. And I think some of the rich kids knew secrets about their own families that they're like, you know, it's not as pretty as it seems like it is from the outside. Yeah, everybody has problems, and and I never mean to minimize that, and nor nor do I mean to say that there's something wonderful about the noble savage that I was born as. It's just not that simple. But there are things that blue collar kids go through that a lot of middle class kids don't. The middle class kids are moving from one middle class space home to another college, and it's more seamless than the blue-collar kids who, who are moving to a new world uh, yes. and learning a new language. Who, after a while, you feel like a basketball team that's perpetually playing on the road, like you never have a home game. Um, <laughs> you just sort of learn how to deal with that. Yeah. Since the book came out, it's been uh, 14, 15 years. How do you think things have changed for the working class? I would say it's remarkably the same. Well, last year, I started a project where I, I found a bunch of first-generation working-class kids who were entering the University of Pennsylvania, and I followed them through the course of their first year. They had the same thing. They had that sort of shock of entering college with extraordinarily wealthy people who would tell them, you, you know, well, well, what you got to do is you got to get a Canada Goose coat, you know, because it's the warmest thing, you know, and like, they can't afford Canada Goose coats. You know, right. started like 900 on. They went through the whole thing of feeling like they were imposters, of feeling like they didn't belong. Uh, having having fellow students say, "Let's let's go to uh, let's go to Switzerland on on Christmas break when 
these kids couldn't afford to get a ticket home to see their folks. And so they stayed in on a campus that was mostly closed and they had trouble getting food. They had to go to food banks for uh, part of the time. They also fought with their families. There were these Latina and African-American kids I talked to. They seem to have a, they have it doubly hard because they, sometimes their people, their own group of family and friends, everybody who, who they think of as their, their home folks will, will say that, I mean, not only are you ascending to another class and, and, think, and moving ahead of us, it, 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 to, to some extent, they get, the, they get the criticism that, you know, you think you're becoming white, you think you're better mm. than, you, you know, mm. there's, this, there's this extra component that I did not have to struggle with, but these kids from, from Penn were telling me about. To answer your question more, more, more succinctly, I, I haven't seen that much of a change in fact, and to any degree, I think, I think it's gotten worse because when I was growing up, it was perfectly acceptable to get a, a union card from dad or uncle, uncle Joe and go to work in some field like construction or, or uh, pipe fitting or whatever, and you make a good living. The, the kids today, they don't have, they don't have that option. And, and many of them also um, going to college is they're, they're actually supposed to be working at home, they've been working maybe through their through high school years and stuff, helping their families with that money that they made by going to college. They're not only spending money, but they're taking away that income from from the family. These kids that I talk to feel incredibly disloyal and and selfish. They feel like becoming educated is is a, the ultimate selfish act because they're putting themselves above their family, and that leads to even greater pressures because the first time they get a C on a on a paper or something like that, they feel like, oh my God, I, I didn't just get a C. I didn't just fail myself. I'm failing my family because my family is, is sacrificing for me to be here. And, and so I was struck by that pressure. I don't think the food bank experience is in the pen admissions materials that you're going to find online. No, and it's not just, I don't mean to just single out Penn. <laughs> no. There, there, there are <laughs> food banks uh, for, in colleges every, everywhere. I'm, you know, I'm not so, trying to pick on Penn either. Now, on the other side of the okay. coin, you talk about how some white straddlers reported resenting affirmative action. Do you see any correlation with that and the Trump era that we find ourselves in? Yeah, I, I mean, some, some white straddlers talked about the idea that um, this one guy said that, well, you know, if you're going to give affirmative action to, let's say, a minority person whose parents are surgeons, and I'm a white guy coming from Appalachia or something like that, you know, where's the fairness in that? And I think schools have been able to recognize that, and I think that's why you have more and more of these first-gen programs in, in colleges where they're trying to recognize that that people, if, if they're if they're white, they, they they still have have lots of problems where they're coming from. A working class background. When you say the era of Trump, I, I, I guess I'm not sure what, what the context is that you're trying to. Uh... Do you believe that resentment or affirmative action or that, I believe I even read an article that you wrote about your dad and explaining why he voted for Trump. Do I have that right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad uh, voted for Trump. He, he's not a racist. He just saw, saw Trump as, as a guy who he sees it as a person who cuts through the, the clutter and, and gets down to brass tacks and, and, and says what people are really thinking and, and, and on and on. I mean, I, mean, I, I have different views, but that, that's, that's sort of how guys like him feel. And they, they sort of feel like they were left behind in the world and that maybe um, there are people who think that maybe, you know, in, in our zeal to make things more equal in our society, that, that we left people behind, you, you know, and, and that's, that's a kind of baloney that, that some people buy when, when in fact, prejudices and, uh, are alive and well and, and biases continue and th- there, there really is a need to help people through affirmative action or other, other means to get them through. But it's obviously become less and less popular. Mm. You've been the poverty reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer for how long now? Uh, on and off for 10 years. How is spending your days writing and thinking and reporting about poverty, how does that change your view of the American dream? Well, we, we have this idea that, that, that anybody can uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, uh, that part of the American dream, and then, and, then, you know, and then to attain the things that 
that we all aspire to, a house and kids and a car and vacations and things like that, and for uh, the, the current generation to do better than the previous generation. I find that just to be um, n- naive and, and actually just, I think it's just falling apart. The single hardest thing to do in America is to rise out of poverty. Now, and I'm not talking about me. I mean, we were, we were more or less working class. We lived in poverty for a little while, but you, you know, as a, as a white person, you have white privilege, and, and that means a lot for a lot of the people I write about who are minority people living in Philadelphia, which is the poorest of the 10 most populous U.S. cities. What is stacked against people is astronomical. And I was interviewing a professor from St. Joe's here in, in, in the area who mm-hmm. was saying that she was attending a graduation ceremony at a high school. And the principal was telling these kids from this this neighborhood that where, where some of the blocks were, we're, we're talking about like 60% poverty. The principal was saying, you can be anything you want. And the professor said, I wanted to strangle this guy mm. because, you know, why do you say that? Why do you say that to people who clearly are um, living in, in, in a time and place where there's just, there's almost nothing to elevate them, nothing to help them. I had great advantage, even coming from the working class, even coming from a family where nobody went to college for me. I had great advantage over these these kids, and I, I just I just fret about it all the time. I just I don't understand uh, what it is that that can be done necessarily. Except you know, I'll talk to experts, and they and they say to me, "Oh, it's real simple." You, you know, people will will liken fixing poverty to fixing. Uh, climate change. They, they say it's a simple fix. There's just no will to do it. You mm. know, the, the idea that the idea that you people laugh at the Green New Deal and they uh, and they say, oh, it's so simplistic. And, you know, similarly, people who are who, who understand poverty will say, well, what you got to do is raise wages and, and in, raise wages and, and increase uh, the allotments for SNAP, you know, food stamps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you'll get people out of poverty overnight. Not everybody, but, but so many that you, you'll, you'll start you'll start things moving, but that's, you know, that's considered socialist. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, where, where would the, where would the will be for that? What guidance should that principal have given those, those children in that school? I, I think, I don't, I don't know, but, but I think something more nuanced than the, the, the old <laughs> platitudes, about, yeah. uh, work hard and you'll get whatever you want. You know, yeah. maybe, you know, there, there are ways to succeed but it takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice, not only by you, but by your family and, and, you know, on and on. And, you know, there are parts of Philadelphia, the poorest parts of Philadelphia also are places that have like the largest open air drug market on the East coast. Mm -hmm. And I talked to, uh, uh, there was a a pen professor, Philippe Bourgois, who, uh, he's not a pen anymore, but, but he, he's written books about drug dealing. And he and, and some of his graduate students lived in these neighborhoods. They, they literally mm-hmm. took apartments in these neighborhoods just to, you know, kind of like the, the old-fashioned anthropologists who would go to Africa or, or Papua right. New Guinea to, to understand a little bit more. And, and he lived in these places, and he said that why people would not deal drugs is, is a mystery to him. And right. the way he broke it down was he would say that some kid would, would tell his complaints to his friends. Oh, my mom's electricity is being cut off. You know, we, we're not going to have electricity. Uh, and, and the friends would say to him, well, what kind of selfish son are you that you will mm. not deal drugs to make enough money to help your mother turn the lights on? They'd right. like, what, what kind of animal are you? And that is, that is a pressure that most people don't see or understand. Going to work for, a, for the drug dealers is kind of, in these neighborhoods, it's kind of like, going to work for Ford or going to the coal mine in, in, in Michigan and West Virginia, respectively, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the idea that it's, it's sort of the, uh, the town industry. And when you have kids like that, and then invariably they get arrested and they have, a, and then they get in a, they get a record and then they can't get hired any, anywhere significant. It's just so, it's just a cycle that's just yeah. so incredibly sad and difficult. You mentioned your daughter earlier. She's 15. Is that correct? Yes. She's on the precipice of college and, a career in adulthood. What do you hope for her and what advice do you give her when it comes to career and education? Well, the first thing is that she has announced to me that she wants to go to college 3,000 miles away in California. So I am trying to understand why this child needs the entire North American landmass between us. 
<laughs> and it's, it's kind of kind of hurtful. I'm a good daddy. Um, Weather's but, uh, pretty nice in California, though. I mean, you know, Philly's lovely. Well, that's that's what she that's what she keeps saying. You, you know, it's, it's it's like why why the hell do I have to have another snowstorm? I I tell her that well, the way I lived is that I I, I did what I wanted to do, and you know, issuing <laughs> big money or or, or the, the the at least the assumption that I would make big money, you know, just as lame as it sounds, following my bliss, you know, and, and, I, and I was able to get up every morning because I loved what I do. And, and that is mm-hmm. something that I tell her, I hope for her, but, but, I, but I also have to say that, that I tell her, can you move into more like the STEM careers? You, you, you know, can you, can <laughs> right. you look a little bit more toward them rather than, uh, the, the, you know, and she, and you know, it, it, it makes me crazy because she likes English and writing. And, no, no, you don't, you don't. <laughs> um, I, I want her to, you know, you're like science. And just, well, what are you talking about? Do not about? pursue um, the arts. Nobody wants that, to. That's right. Do not. Right. And I'm becoming like, you, you know, like, like I, that warning that uh, about my dad, you know, don't, don't, whatever you do, don't be, don't be like me. Don't, don't be a reporter. The first thing, of course, is I want her to be happy. The second thing is, you know, if I don't want her to be in big debt. I had this this bizarre interaction with her not long ago. She's she's adopted from from Guatemala. I thought, well, oh god, oh great, you know, there, there's a there's an advantage, you, you know. Mm-hmm. She's she's <laughs> she's from another country and she's a, she's a minority. And I mean, not only is she Latina, she's Native American essentially, right? Because she is from Central American Indian stock. She's part Mayan Indian. So, but you know, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to prove that. But I mean, I know it's so because I spent time in Guatemala with, with you know, and I, I know mm-hmm. a little bit about where she came from. But to prove it, I, I said, well, you got to take one of those genetic tests. Don't do it. You, you Don't know. do it. Uh, <laughs> I know. But, but uh, she wouldn't do it because it entailed spitting into a test tube and she didn't want to spit. Mm-hmm. And so it, it wound up with, we wound up having these bizarre conversations in our house. It's like spit, spit. I can't afford college. You know, but, you know. Would you rather spit in a tube or have an extra $60,000 in student loans when you're 22 years old? <laughs> That's right. I've, I've tried to explain something to you, but you know, one of the, I've written stories about kids in college and, and I mean, this is, this is a proven fact by sociologists, psychologists, and, and others who uh, say that kids, teenagers do not understand debt. They don't right. understand the concept of debt. There's nothing in their lives that sort of taught it to them before. So if they hear that there's going to be a, uh, they're going to be given a check that's going to cover the whole thing in college, they say, well, wh- well why not? And they tell them, you're going to be spending $600 a month just on the loan. You know, you're never going to, you know, it's like, and it all also happens to occur at the very time when, when they start listening to parents the least, you know, their later teen years. So it's like, uh, so it could be an uphill battle. Alfred Lebrano, thank you very much for sharing your story and your work with us. Where can people find you in the social world? Twitter at Alfred Lebrano, and I'm on Facebook uh, also under my name, and, and I will, uh, and, and they can Google me uh, and see my work that way. And they find your work at philly.com, is that correct? Yes, philly.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So that's my conversation with Alfred Lebrano from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thank you, Alfred. In next week's episode, we're going to have conversations with real-life straddlers who have made the leap from the blue-collar world to the middle-class world or the upper-middle-class world or upper-class, in some of the cases, through education, through hard work, and through some real just incredible motivation. So please be sure to tune back in then. Hey, folks, if you like the podcast, I sure would appreciate it if you give us a Nice little rating there on whichever podcast app you're using to uh, to listen to it. A few stars. And if you if you have a minute, share it with a friend. Thanks a lot for being here. Talk to you later.